like to ask you to turn to Philippians chapter 1 this evening. Philippians chapter 1, please. Started uh, two weeks ago, the last leg of our Benchmark of Discipleship series. And uh, so we have, Lord willing, tonight, uh, assuming we all make it through the sermon, and then next Sunday night, the 10th, uh, to close that off. So uh, we, uh, we are trying to work at it from the framework of establishing what it would look like for someone uh, to go from uh, not having a relationship with Christ to being a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. What, what would that look like? What would be the benchmarks along the way? So they'd come to trust in Christ, uh, belong to the assembly of God's people, be growing in their relationship with Christ, serving the Lord in the body, sharing the resources that God has entrusted with them as well as their hope of the gospel in Christ, uh, multiplying themselves in the lives of others uh, as, as disciples and servants and leaders. And then since the local church is under the command of the Great Commission, uh, to to make disciples to the ends of the earth and to the ends of the age, uh, every mature believer would be fully committed to the Great Commission. And, and we're putting that under the word sending. So trusting, belonging, growing, serving, sharing, multiplying, and sending. And we looked last time, two weeks ago at verse five, to see the core concept or principle Paul's grateful uh, for the Philippians in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, that they had become partners with Paul in the ministry and mission of the gospel from the first day they received it until now, which, as you know, Paul is writing from a Roman prison. I don't, uh, you know, so, so essentially from the moment they came to trust Christ they became, became committed to the mission of Jesus Christ in the advance of the gospel. So as I said, the, the core concept is mature believers are fully committed to the Great Commission. Um, if, if we haven't embraced the mission of Jesus Christ to gather up sheep from all of the nations to, to build his church, uh, then I I think it just seems obviously that we cannot be following too close to him. Right? The, the thing he came to do, if we're following him closely, we would be engaging with him in. Uh, to, to have no heart for the lost or for the nations is to demonstrate a heart out of step with the heart of Jesus Christ. And, and so we need to have this constantly before our minds, as I believe I said in the last message, but this has been a crazy fall in terms of preaching and missions conferences. I know I said this somewhere. I'm hoping it was here, but I'm going to say it here as well, right? That, um, that, that missions is not a program of the church, is actually what the church is, Right? If we treat missions as if it's like one thing that we do among a bunch of things that we do as a church, we've, we've misunderstood the very centrality of the Great Commission. 
that it actually is the purpose of the church to honor God by making and maturing disciples who together are becoming like Jesus Christ. And, and you can unpack that enormously, but at, at the very least, it would be what Jesus said in John 4, where he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Right? The heart of Jesus was to glorify his father by doing the work entrusted to him. And we are in that same that same pattern that we have been entrusted with the global expansion of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And, and so uh, a church, a church that, that sees itself as, uh, I know they wouldn't, really, they wouldn't really see themselves this way, but essentially sees themselves as sort of a, a black hole into which everything is sucked, right, all ministry actually moves into it is, is out of line with the pattern that's clearly in the scriptures that it's actually the other way around, that when the gospel lands in a particular place, it becomes the base of operation to spread out into the region around it. So, so you see that pattern uh, beginning at Jerusalem, and into Samaria, Judea, and the remote parts of the earth. You see it at, at uh, Thessalonica. The gospel landed in Thessalonica, and then from them sounded out the word of the Lord into all Macedonia and Achaia, right? So the gospel landed there and became a beachhead for missionary expansion because the church is a missionary entity, and the church, no church is healthy that thinks it's just sort of doing its thing. And then we have missionaries over here that are doing the Great Commission. Right? We actually are responsible for the Great Commission. It's been entrusted to the disciples of Jesus Christ. And so every church has to see itself as a missionary entity, not just having a missions program. And, and the church is not healthy if it hasn't embraced its role as being senders. That is a launching pad for people to take the gospel out into the places around it and to the ends of the earth where people have not heard the name of Christ or where healthy churches have not been established that can also reproduce. That's the mission that Jesus has entrusted to us. So the way... I like to say it, is that every place should go from being a mission field to a mission force, right? It's actually, we're the recipients of the gospel. We become responsible for the gospel, and then we become the, the launching pad for the gospel into the, into the region around us, in the community in which we find ourselves. We're seeking to win people to Christ, but all around any community at any given time, just because of demographic shifts, population changes, there open up areas where the gospel is actually not being preached near them. And the, the task of trying to multiply disciples is hindered when, when it keeps being, well, this place needs to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Instead of, 
we need to send people to work and advance the gospel there, right? And, and, and it's crucial to that. And a lot of churches, um, and we, every church, the older it gets, is potentially susceptible to it, but a lot of churches that adopted, and I'm, I've been hesitating to say this because my brain is, is, well, you may think my brain's always running on low battery, but it's, it's a little lower tonight, all right? Um, so the difference between centripetal and centrifugal, all right, a centrifuge launches things out. Something that's centripetal is pulling it to the middle. Throughout much of the 20th century, church growth philosophy was centripetal, right? We, we've won people to Christ. The church has grown, so we need to build a bigger building. We get more people, build a bigger building, keep, and just keep doing that because healthy churches just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And now... So that was the boom, baby boom in the, in the middle of the 20th century, massive growth of things. There are multitudes of churches that are, are actually have aged out and essentially have gigantic shells and not significant congregations. Because when you add a bigger building, you add more financial obligation and more responsibilities and everything, everything starts to get top heavy. And pretty soon everything's about serving and sustaining the church rather than accomplishing the mission of Jesus Christ. And, and that's, that's not healthy. That's not good. We always have to keep our eye on the fact that Jesus has called us to keep pressing the gospel out to places where he's not been named, to peoples who have no access to the saving grace of God because it only comes through the preaching of the gospel. So we receive the gospel, we become responsible for the gospel. We, at one time, were a mission field. Now we should be a mission force advancing the gospel. Three ways in the past I've talked about serving as senders. Look at verse 19. We're not going to look at all three of them tonight because I have two messages by which I can get this done, all right? So the first is look at verse 19. Uh, actually, you can see, well, if you have NASB, you can see the sentence starts at the very end of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that through your prayers. So Paul here is talking about their partnership in the gospel through prayer. And this is, this is something that was a priority for Paul because he mentions prayer, intercessory prayer, uh, almost constantly in his letters. Right, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1, to the Philippians here in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, and Colossians, he asked them to pray in chapter 4, verse 2. To the Thessalonians, he asked them to pray at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The writer of Hebrews asked them to pray for him. Right, so, so it was a priority that intercession for the mission of Jesus Christ would be carry out, carried out by the followers of Christ. I mean, it's a priority of life that we would be praying for the advance of the gospel for those who are advancing the gospel. In this particular case, Paul 
is talking to us about what he believes is the power of this prayer or the effectiveness of it. Notice he says, for I know, verse 19, that this will turn out for my deliverance or my vindication through your prayers. And so he draws a, he draws a connection between his deliverance or vindication and their prayers. He saw them as effectively tied together. That their praying would be an instrument of God's providential working to effect his deliverance. Right? He, he didn't think prayer was just sort of like a verbal exercise to get you centered in the right place or just a way in which you sort of lined yourself up with the will of God. He actually sees prayer, like James does, as being an effective thing in the outworking of God's plan, right? The, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much, James 5 says. All right, let me... Let me have you look at two verses. Keep your place marked here in Philippians, but go to 2 Corinthians chapter one and see Paul talking to the Corinthians about their ministry of prayer. 2 Corinthians chapter one. Paul is prone to long sentences, so we're actually gonna pop into the end of a sentence uh, that starts in the verse before it. He's been unpacking a whole series of ideas about the affliction and difficulties he's had while he's been serving in Asia. Then look at the last line of verse 10 says, and he will yet deliver us, you also joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on behalf of the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. All right, so he says in verse 11 that the Corinthians would be joining in helping him through prayer. Uh, I guess it's, it may have been close to 20 years since I've preached on this text, so I'm not expecting you to remember it. Uh, but at the, at the time, uh, and I think the point that we need to see here is this, is that we have a tendency to talk like this. Hey, this Saturday, we have an outreach happening or we have some ministry happening. Please come out and work with us. Help us carry it out. But if you can't come and help, pray for us. Right? Or we're going to do X, Y, and Z, but if you can't do that, then pray for us as if praying is something different than helping us, right? You got to do the work, but if you can't do the work, then at least pray. As if prayer is something other than joining in helping us. But look at the language of this text. He says, you can join in helping us by praying. So the right way to think about it would be, be here and help us, or pray and help us. But both are actually helping us because praying actually does something, right? It's not just, it's not just a, like a mental exercise. It's not just a, a way to center yourself or get yourself in the right mood or, or some 
some kind of mental game that you're playing. It actually is securing from God answers which are effective in the advance of the work. Go back to, in your mind, go back to Philippians. Right? Paul says, my vindication through your prayers. You know how you're going to help me while I'm in this Roman prison? You're in Philippi over in Greece and I'm in Rome. You're going to pray to the God who's in heaven, who's going to answer, and he's going to vindicate me in this prison. And and that's what he's talking about here in, in Corinth. So the second verse, go to Hebrews chapter 13. Because here's, a, 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 I think, a very clear example that takes those two texts, 2 Corinthians 1.11 and Hebrews 3, or, uh, Philippians 1.19 and shows the connection between them. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 18 and 19. Right of Hebrews says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this. What's the do this? To pray. Pray for us. And I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you sooner. I think, think about what he's saying there. Right? I urge you all the more to pray so that I may be restored to you the sooner. So he sees a connection between the increasing amount of their prayer and the decreasing amount of his time imprisoned. Pray more so I will be delivered sooner. Okay, there's a... There's an effective connection between the two, right? That he expects God to answer their prayers. So to go back to the 2 Corinthians 1.11, you joining in helping us by prayer, right? So we're praying together to God and God bestows favor and answer to prayer. And then we together, to close off the 2 Corinthians 11, offer thanks to God together. Because right? it's, it's not that God is operating like a sit-down strike and if you can get, or a petition, right? God, God will answer this level of prayer if you have like five people pray. And then if you need some bigger request, you got to get 50 people. And if it's a really big request, you got to get 500 and then, and then 5,000. It's not like God is actually operating on a petitionary number basis. He's actually wanting more and more people to pray so that more and more people will offer thanks when he answers. Right? But there is an effective connection between the two. God hears the prayers of his people and answers in that way. Uh, let me ask you one more. Go to Romans 15. All right? I hadn't, hadn't planned to look with this one tonight, but I, I think it would help pull together the, the thought as well. Look at the end of Romans 15. Because here's Paul again asking for prayer. Start in verse 30, Romans chapter 15. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. So let's just stop and think about that. 
The kind of praying he's asked for is not casual, indifferent prayer, but to strive together. And it is joint prayer with me. Okay, Paul's writing this. He's in Macedonia and Achaia, so what we'd call modern Greece. He's writing to people in Rome, and he says, pray with me. Become partners with me in prayer and strive together in it, right? In your prayers to God for me, verse 31. Here come the prayer requests. That I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all, amen. So Paul mentions three prayer requests here uh, that are significant prayer requests. And, and I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna unpack all of how God answered them, but think about the book of Acts. Okay, so prayer request number one is that he would be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. Paul gets to Jerusalem and he actually is arrested and they make a plot to take his life and he's rescued from it. And, and here, here's how God answered these prayers. Paul has a relative who overhears a plot. Well, let me back up. They start to kill Paul in the courtyard and a Roman, a Roman soldier dispatches armies to protect him and rescues him from the crowd that's gonna murder him. Then he's in jail and men make a plot that they're gonna kill Paul when he makes his way down to the hearing. And God places providentially one of Paul's relatives next to the people making the plot. That person then moves to tell Paul and Paul sends him to the Roman authority and the Roman authority believes him and puts together a transport for Paul to get up to Caesarea safely. That's the answer to this prayer request. God heard and used a pagan Roman to protect Paul. Put his little nephew in, well, I don't know how little he was. Put his nephew in the presence of the conversation and then had the Roman authorities believe it and put together a safe convoy for him. And then he's protected for two years in Caesarea from people who want to kill him. He's protected via rescue from a shipwreck in answer to this prayer. He's protected from a snake bite on the way, right? That's God answering the prayers of people at Rome along with Paul. The second request, which actually happened before all of that, is that his service would be acceptable. Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. And, and Acts tells us he goes in and he's received gladly, and they gives the report of what's going on, and the brothers there welcome him. And then that he might come to them in joy by the will of God. And you know what? You're actually reading him talking about the joy that he has in the book of Philippians as he got to Rome, right? You read the book of Philippians, and people see joy constantly in that. And that's what Paul talks about. He's saying, listen, God's used this to advance the gospel. He believes that. In fact, even his shipwreck got the gospel to Malta. 
right? If his, if his ship had not been wrecked, there would not have been people who came to Christ through that, right? Paul is confident that God is hearing and answering these prayers. And, and, and honestly, uh, there's gonna be people who are praying for some of these things that may not have known the answers till they get to heaven. Just like every week when we gather and we pray, for those who've gone out for the sake of his name and we're reading what they've asked us to pray for, that are we striving together with them for these things? Are we taking the burden that they have on their heart for whatever it is and making it our burden and going to God with fervency, expecting God to answer? Because God has appointed prayer as his ordained means to obtain the blessings that he has for us in Christ. And James, I don't think, is just winging it when he says, you don't have because you don't ask. God wants us to seek from his throne the blessings that are promised to us in Christ. And particularly with regard to those who are involved in, in ministry, this kind of a text like Romans 15 fits alongside of one like 2 Thessalonians 3. And, and, and uh, it, the dual prayer request for the safety of God's servants and the success of their ministry, right? That's what he says, I'll be rescued from disobedient and that my service will be acceptable. Right? In 2 Thessalonians 3, it is that the word of God would spread rapidly and that we would be protected from evil men. So constantly we can be praying for those who've been sent out for their safety and for their success in the work that they're doing. Alongside of that, or perhaps underneath of it, Matthew 9 would say we should constantly be praying the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. You realize that over half of the world's population could be described as still being unreached in terms of the way Romans 15 describes it. A much smaller portion, but still significant portion of the world, we could describe as being unengaged. There's no one even attempting at this point to take the gospel to them. All right, so, so think... Think of perhaps of places in Southeast Asia where there's some group of people where the gospel has never reached them. And we have workers that our church supports that is trying to be ready to pioneer into a place where they've never been engaged with the gospel. Can you imagine how difficult that is? Right? That's why we should be joining in helping them. But even, even places uh, in Central Asia where you would have maybe 10,000, I mean, if you're being extraordinarily generous, 10,000 gospel-believing Christians in a population of 79 million. I mean, think about that. That's like 0. 0.00016. That's how small the percentage of people who profess faith in Jesus Christ is. So someone's trying to reach them, but the overwhelming nature of unbelief and darkness that is there 
is almost hard to comprehend. Where everywhere you look, you can stand uh, in any kind of a hotel of elevation, you can stand there, and everywhere you look, you can see the tops of mosques. And, And almost nobody preaching the name of Christ. Do you think those people need us to join in helping them by prayer? Absolutely they do. And you know why we can be confident that we can do it? Because before us are the elements that remind us that the effectiveness of our prayer is not based on our righteousness. It's based on the righteousness of Christ. That we can be confident in praying for these things Because Jesus Christ is going to have the reward of his sufferings. He has sheep that he is going to call to himself. And we have the privilege of participating in that by prayer. We actually are joining in the work when we pray. So someday when we have that incredible gathering in the presence of Jesus Christ, and there are people from every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation, some of those folks who will be there will be people for whom we've prayed. And some of those folks will be there because we prayed for those who took the gospel to them. And you know who will know that? Jesus will. And that will be a part of the reason he would say to a faithful servant, well done, well done. Nobody may have ever seen you tucked away in the corner of your house, pouring out your soul in prayer for those who've gone off for the sake of the name. And that's the way it should have been because you went into your closet and shut the door and prayed. But I saw Your father who sees in secret will see it. That's what should draw us into this task. It's an enormous privilege to participate in the work of Christ through prayer.